You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we are at the end of Hosea's prophetic ministry, and uh, he, we, we've, got, we've got left to write through 12 chapters here, and, and here we're, we're really coming to the end of the thing, where Hosea is um, fizzling. We are uh, 50 years roughly into the time period of his prophecy. He's been calling out against the people of Israel now, uh, generation after generation for decades at this point. And all that Hosea has been saying is to come for the nation of Israel is imminent. And he opens up in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 1, with almost a reminiscing where he says, when Ephraim, which is shorthand for the northern kingdom of Israel, when he says, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. So here getting near to the end of this whole thing, Hosea in his mind has gone back to the days when the people of God would approach him with trembling. When they would be exalted in the nation under, the, peop- under the, the reign and the care and the protection of God. It says that, but he incurred guilt. He incurred guilt through Baal and he died. And now they sin more and more and they make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, like smoke from a window. We break into chapter 13 with Hosea looking out at the nation of Israel and proclaiming, it's just getting worse, and it's getting worse, and it's getting worse. I've called upon you. I have pled with you now for all of these years to, 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 re- to repent, to return. I have warned you of the impending doom and judgment that is coming, and yet it has just gotten worse, and it has gotten worse. But was it always this way? No, it wasn't always this way. I can remember a day when Ephraim spoke, and there was trembling in their knees when they approached their God with reverence, when he was highly exalted in Israel. I remember the day, but these days are long gone. For 50 years, they sin more and more, incurring their guilt as they go through Baal, Baal, the pagan god, sinning more and more and making for themselves skillful images, metal images, idols skillfully made of silver, all of them the work of craftsmen, that they, they, they looked away from their God and they looked to the pagan god Baal and they began to worship and, and offer sacrifice to him and they start to craft with their own hands what the, Isra- what the Israelite people have done many times. They start to make, to put their craftsmen to work, to work with metal and silver to make these gods of their own choosing, of their own making. Then it is said of them, there in verse 2, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. And so we can see just how low Israel has fallen 
here in the 8th century B.C., the people of God have resorted to not just building their own gods, fashioning their own gods, putting their craftsmen to work to make beautiful calves and beautiful statues and idols, but then they have bowed down before these idols that they've built with their own hands, and they've started to offer sacrifice to it. Not sacrifices like those which the Lord has required, but sacrificing their own children. They have submitted to the Baals, to the pagan gods, and even submitted to their sacrificial system, sacrificing people at the foot of the altars that they had built, at the foot of the gods which they had created. It had gotten horrible. Therefore, declares the Lord, verse 3, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. The Lord God says, I am going to scatter you. Therefore, I am going to disperse you. Therefore, I am going to vanish you. Therefore, I am going to bring an end to this. Therefore, says the Lord. Year by year, decade by decade, Israel has plunged deeper and deeper into her sinful idolatry to the point that human sacrifice has been attributed to the people of God as they kiss the calves. And the Lord says, it's time. We get to verse 4, he says, but I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. Besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And but when they had grazed, they became full, and they were filled with their, and their heart was lifted up, and therefore they forgot me. The Lord God breaks into this moment, and he says, I've not gone anywhere. I'm the only God you've ever known. All of, the, all of the false gods that you've attributed your provision to, all the false gods that you've been sacrificing to, all of the idolatry that you've surrounded yourself with, convincing yourself that these were the things that have made you to prosper, that these were the things that have met your, your pleasure needs, that these were the, well, it was never that. It was always only me. I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, from way back there, from, from, the day, from those days of bondage and slavery, when you cried out and I regarded your cry and I liberated you from Pharaoh and I led you through the Red Sea and I said, you need only to be still as he parts the sea and he walks them through on dry land and for 40 years in the desert wilderness, he walks with them and he provides for them manna from heaven as he drives sweet water from the rock, as he makes the bitter water sweet with the miracle at the hand of Moses and Aaron. All that he did to prosper them in the wilderness before bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey and covenanting with them to be their God and that they shall be their people. He says, it has always been me, your God, the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, and you have known no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. All these places that you've been looking, my people Israel, for salvation, looking to the foreign nations, looking to their gods, there is no Savior but me, the Lord declares. It was always me the one who knew you in the wilderness, the one who was with you in the land of drought, the one who brought you to graze and to become full. And yet the more that I filled you, the more that I prospered you, the more that I caused you to prevail, the more that I showed my mercy and grace upon you, your bellies became full, your hearts became lifted up, and you forgot the Lord. Therefore, they have forgotten me, the Lord God says there in verse 6. And so he turns and he says now that he is going to be to them like a lion in verse 7. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts and there I'll devour them like a lion as a wild beast 
would rip them open. These four beasts that he mentions here in Hosea 13, 7 show up again in Daniel chapter 7, and in that prophecy, it's very clear, it's made very clear that the four beasts represent four nations, that he's going to cause nations to rise up against the people Israel, whether it was the Assyrians or the Persians or the Babylonians or the Romans, that God was going to cause the, the surrounding nations to rise up against his people and to disperse and scatter them into exile and to remove his presence from them, to remove his provision from them. Verse 9, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you and all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, and his sin is kept in store. So we'll pause here, and we'll track the trajectory of what the Lord through Hosea is declaring here. There was a time, there was a day when you trembled before me. There was a time, there was a day when you were great, when you prospered before me. There was a time back there in the land of Egypt when I was your rescuer, when you were my people and I was your God, but those days are long gone. Here, 50 years into the prophetic life of Hosea and really 250 years roughly of just awful, belligerent idolatry and sin among the nation of Israel, the Lord is bringing his judgment through the nations to come against his people. And the reason was is they'd plunged into the depths of their idolatry and their sin. What we need to see is that the sinfulness of sin, the wickedness of sin in Israel and in all mankind is exceedingly great. And it is not a trifling thing in the eyes of the Lord for us to destroy what is beloved by him or to mock his holy name. The God of the Bible is a severe judge. His wrath is awesome. His justice is pure. None can accuse him. His judgment on sin is certain, and he brings an end to sinners. That's our God. One way or another, our God brings an end to sinners. You remember as we got to verse 13 that the people have done this partial repentance where they've begun calling out to God. They've forgotten him. They've begun calling out as he takes from them and he takes from them and he takes from them. And here finally he's taking their kings and he says, I will not hear you when you call to me because you're going to call to me and say, give us back our idols. Give us back our idols. Give us back our idols. But I'm going to continue to remove until one day you call out for me and for me alone because it is I and I alone who am your savior, the Lord says. But here, he says, it was I who gave you your kings in, your, in my anger. You guys, if, you, if you're reading your Old Testament, might remember that from 2 Samuel 7, where the people of God are angry that, they, that God is leading them directly. And they say, we want kings like the other nations. And in his anger, he gives them kings. And then he says, and now I've taken them away in my wrath. That both in giving them man, men to lead them and in taking these men from them, both were were actions of judgment and anger and wrath against them. And so this is the way it played out all in Hosea's lifetime. Jeroboam II, that first king in the 8th century B.C. that Hosea began to prophesy, well, he gives way to Zechariah, and Zechariah is assassinated, and then he's replaced by Shalom, and then he is killed and replaced by Menahem. 
who then plunders the people and gives their wealth to Israel. And then he's replaced by Pekahiah, who's murdered, and replaced by Pekah, who is replaced by Hosea, who falls to the Assyrians and is the last king of Israel. And all of this takes place in the 50-year period where Hosea is calling out for the people to repent. The Lord says, I will take away the kings that I have given you in my anger. I will take them away in my wrath. And so the last king of Israel falls to Assyria during the prophetic day of Hosea. What we see is that the judgment of God, it is swift and it is total and it is sure, and the people of God are encountering it. They're, they're being turned over to their sin. They're being turned over to their idolatry. The Lord is lifting his hand of protection. He'd gone with them all those days. He'd been the one to prosper them, and he says, no more. And he lifts his hands, and he scatters them among the nations. And the results are going to be catastrophic says that the iniquity of Ephraim, it's bound up that its sin is kept in store, that the Lord in his infinite mind, remember we talked about this, that he's got the fullness of their record stored up, that none of it has gone unseen to his divine eye, that all of it is known. In church, let this land on you, that all of your sin is known to the infinite and divine mind of God. And the nature of your sin is worthy of all of the justice and all of the judgment and all of the wrath and all of the punishment of God. We look to these who have resorted to human sacrifice and many of us will think, well, surely that the Lord is grading us on a curve and that since I haven't done that, that his anger burns against them but not against me, but we're deluding ourselves. See, when we really consider the gap between the Father and His creation, we, it takes away our ability to delude ourselves. If we really let ourselves see the state of things, we would never tell ourselves that we could fix this, that we could make it right, that by our effort that we could restore ourselves to God. When we do that, we are minimizing the problem. We're making God small, and we're making sin small, and we're making his holiness small, and that's the only way. It's pride and stupidity that causes us to believe that my way out is going to be my effort. No. The Lord has stored up, bound up the iniquity of Ephraim, he, and their sin is kept in store it says there in verse 13 that the pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. If you try to catch that imagery from the Lord, the pangs of childbirth come for him, meaning it's time. That deliverance was imminent, that, that the hour had come for you to be delivered, that I extended my hand to deliver you from those pangs of childbirth, but that you... We're an unwise son, and at the right time you did not present yourself to the opening of the womb. And because you would not be delivered, instead you will die. The hour came to be delivered, but like an unwise son, you would not present yourself to the opening of the womb, and instead you will die. Shall I spare them from this? God asks himself rhetorically in verse 14. Shall I ransom them? 
from the power of Sheol shall I redeem them from death? And then he answers himself, by no means. He says, O death, where are your plagues? Bring them. O Sheol, where is your sting? Bring it. Compassion is hidden from my eyes, he says. He looks out and he says, my judgment is sure and imminent. Death and Sheol are due based on this, this iniquity that is in store, that is bound up in my sight. See, mercy's door, the atrocities of earth, they're not a footnote in human history. They are the human history. If we just stay within the borders of this nation and we stay within the bounds of the last 250 years and we observe the atrocities of abortion, of chattel slavery, of Jim Crow laws, of a civil war, of rioting in the streets, of mass shootings, of the Trail of Tears, of Japanese internment camps during World War II, some of you don't even need to leave your, the walls of your own childhood homes to get eyes on the iniquity of the depravity of the story of wickedness in the hearts of men. It's never far from reach. It's always in our sight. And if we broaden the view to cover the scope of the whole globe, all people for all time, across all generations, we see that the narrative of the portrait of the heart of man is bleak. The heart is deceitful beyond all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Says Jeremiah. The wickedness of man in its fallen state, it's immeasurable. We're desperately sick, deserving of judgment, deserving of wrath and punishment for harming what our Creator loved and for mocking His holy name. This is the state of things. This is the truth. Lest we believe that that's someone else's problem, it's not my problem. The Lord is showing it to us from right within the people group of those whom he called his set-apart ones. It's true of Israel, ancient Israel. It's true of all mankind. The innate nature of sin separates us from God. We're not like him. And we cannot make ourselves right. And just like he said in the garden, the wages of sin are death. And so when he looks out upon the iniquity of his people, he asks himself, shall I redeem them from death? No. Death, where are your plagues? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Verse 15, though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness. His fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched. He shall strip his treasury and every precious thing. Samaria will bear her guilt because she's rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. He's given Hosea eyes to see into what is coming for them, and this is what's going to happen. The nations are going to rage against Israel, and they're going to be scattered among a people who are fully turned over to their sin and to their depravity, and what comes for them next is what will come. This is, this is the way of men. 
This is not something that is foreign to us. This is something that we are seeing in the headlines today. These are the ways of men, and when men are handed over to men, absent from the, from the providing and, and protecting hand of the Lord, we see atrocity. The testimony of mankind is that we are unspeakably wicked. So where will our help come from? In Hosea chapter 1, God told Hosea, after he told him to, to marry an unfaithful woman, Gomer, and to bear children with her and to name them, different things. One of them was named Not My People. And when he said of this child that he was to name Not My People, he says, and yet, right after that, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel was the name of one of the other three children, and Jezreel means scattered people. He says, great shall be the name of this child, the day of this child, scattered people. And innumerable will be the children of this one who was called not my people, and they shall be called children of the living God. So if he opens his prophecy with this declaration and then makes this proclamation at the end of the prophecy, how is it resolved? Well, I think that we find the resolution in the same way that Paul did when he quotes this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15.50. Paul wrote this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you this great mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, here he's quoting Hosea 13, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, our Lord brings an end to sinners. This is what he does. He brings an end to sinners, and one way or another, he's going to do it, and he's going to do it through death. Our Lord will bring an end to sinners through death, and we need to hang in that tension because on the one hand, you are made right. You're, you are, the Lord has brought an end to you as a sinner through death. 
but he has united your death with the death of his son so that all of, all of the sin that was clinging to you was instead heaped upon the shoulders of Christ so that the righteous one dying in your place would put a death to your sin that you might be resurrected into eternal life by the merits of Christ alone. That's the story of every Christian, that you were saved through death. And that's how Paul is able to look at this, the Lord saying, no, I shall not spare my people from death, but bring it, bring the sting of death, bring the plagues of death, bring the sting of Sheol. He says, make it be so. Well, that sting ultimately fell upon your substitute upon Jesus Christ on your behalf, and by letting the fullness of his rage and his wrath fall upon sin while it was upon the shoulders of Christ, our just God, who will not punish sin twice, has not an ounce left of wrath left to pour out on you, such that death now, the death that you've been united with Christ in, is your entryway into eternal life, shedding the perishable and taking upon you the imperishable. It is through death that the Christian enters eternal life. But the Father has determined to deal with all sinners through death. And so for those who are not united with Christ in his death, they will be dealt with by their destruction, by their own death. Without a sacrificial death on your behalf, you will make payment for your own sin. And since you are not the perfect and holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, there's no coming back from that death for you. Sinners are dealt with through death, the death of Christ or your own death. These are the two options. This is the way of our holy God. He does not leave sin unjudged. He will judge it on the shoulders of Christ or he will judge it upon your shoulders. But Paul proclaims this for those who are united with Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote, for many of whom I'm often, I've often told you now and tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and is their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship, church, is in heaven, Paul says, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be made like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It was the will of the Lord from eternity past all the way into eternity future to ransom the world by passing his chosen people through death. He will save for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation by passing them through death, the death of Christ on our behalf, and all the rest he will judge through death the way that you naturally understood it. It is not a trifling matter to presume upon the grace of God. It is with awe and trembling like the ancient people of Israel that we go before him in his majesty and we say, Christ alone. Christ alone. Guys, if you're, if you're thinking that you're going to make yourself right by any means but Christ alone, you're not understanding the size of the problem and you're not understanding the necessary size of the solution. You're not enough to make yourself right with God. But some of you, 
don't need help understanding the size of the problem. You need help understanding the size of your Savior. Some of you are convinced. You didn't need my help. That it's that bad. That you're that wicked. That God's that holy. And the way out is what seems impossible to you. And for you, I want to read Ezekiel 37. Just listen. Go there in your mind. Close your eyes if you need to. The Lord speaks to the prophet Ezekiel, and he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and I will cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was still no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off, and if this is you this morning, listen to me. Therefore prophesy, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you. You shall live. I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I've spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Our God, if you belong to him, has made his spirit to fill you. The living God himself has taken up residence within you. You who were dead have been born again by your baptism and the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Holy God. He said he would do it. He will do it. If you think that you are too far gone, are you bones? Are you dry bones with no sinew or flesh to boast of? No, our God who can do this has made his spirit to live in you. You need What more assurance do you need than that? Tell me, what more assurance do you need than that, that the Lord has seen you fitting to be the temple of the living God? That's the work of Christ on your behalf. He has changed you from one to whom God said, get out of my presence like we see in his scattering of the people, to one who he says, you are fitting for me to literally live within you. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that must happen for you. 
And if everything that I'm saying is foreign to you this morning, then you must know that today is the day for you to recognize that you cannot make yourself right with the Lord God. He must make you right by his own good decree, by the power of his own spirit. And I want to invite you today to be the day that you repent from your self-righteousness, that you, depend, that you repent from all of your other efforts to make yourself right with God, of your actions that say to him that this idol that I fashioned with my own hand is sufficient, that I don't need you, God. And you turn to him and you plead with him for your salvation because it will be by Christ alone that you are made right with this holy and just God who brings an end to sinners. And then he can bring an end to you as a sinner today by slaying that body of flesh and putting in you new life, new life in Christ that is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. This is the promise of those who repent and turn to Christ. And if you've done this, if you belong to him, then you belong to him eternally. And I want to remind you every week, if I can do so, that Christ said it is the will of the Father that he should not lose a one that the Father has given to him. You're not going to sin your way out of this. He accounted for all of that when he paid for it at Calvary. And by filling you with this Holy Spirit, he is going to finish the good work that he started within you so that one day you will look up and you will look in the mirror and you will see the image of Christ staring back at you because you've been covered in the blood of the lamb who was slain on your behalf. Jesus Christ lived the life that you needed to live for you. He died the death you deserve to die for you and he has risen to the new life that is your hope of eternity. So worship him. Applications, just two of them this morning. One of them is that these streets are lined with dry bones. Mosquito and Scott Air Force Base is lined with dry bones and their only hope is the hope of the gospel, which is the hope of salvation for all who will believe. If you want to see dry bones rattle and come back to life again, you declare the gospel in obedience to the Great Commission and you watch as others enjoy what you have enjoyed, the spirit landing on a dead man and bringing him to life. Let's get in the game and let's participate with what the Lord has said is his mission in the world, the same gospel that saved you. Let's bring it out there. Number two is if Israel is any indication. What we know is that the people of God can still sin. And so I want you guys to soberly look at repentance, not as a one-time thing, but as repentance, as the life of the believer, that we are to walk distinct from the world, that we are to walk in a way that shows people the person of Christ, that, that yields to the Holy Spirit within us. Whereas before, all that you could offer is filthy rags. Today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to walk in righteousness. And I encourage you to each day repent before the Lord and to follow him to find Christ to be worthy of your obedience. And whenever you fail, and each day you will, to trust in him in your daily confession and dependence upon him. Because ultimately, it's not going to be how well you listen to me on that thing that you're made right with him. That part was dealt with by Christ. And it's also Christ. If you really believe he can do that, then a fuller view of his might on this side of eternity is that if he's in you, that you can walk in him. And so I want to encourage you to step out of despair and to walk in confidence that the Lord will do in you and through you what he wishes to do. So walk with him. Trust him. Obey him. Preach the gospel and walk with Jesus. Can we pray to that end?